G'day and welcome to another edition of The Horse's Mouth. You're in The Horse's Mouth and my name is John Teague. Today on The Horse's Mouth, in The Horse's Mouth, we have Kamina Lyle. Kamina is, uh, she's an amazing human being. Um, She's had a wild, wild career and life and very accomplished and really um, stood in the face of just adversity that I can't ever even fathom to get my head around and uh, has written an amazing book about it, which will be spoken about during the podcast. So I hope you enjoy the chat that I have with Kamina um, because I certainly enjoyed talking to her. She's uh, 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 she's a beautiful human. Anyway... um, What's going on? It's springtime. Spring is here. We're in shorts. I'm in shorts. Loving shorts. Uh, Just back from an injury, so I've been uh, grounded for a month, and I'm happy to be back in the water. I'm happy to be um, moving around unrestricted. Got to stretch. You've got to stretch. Got to stretch. This is um, this is becoming more and more apparent the older I get. Stretch. Slow down and stretch. It's difficult because I just want to get the fuck out the door. Anyway, um, blah, blah, blah. I hope you're well and I hope you enjoy the chat you that we have. Uh, interesting? Wow. Wait till you hear two hours of crap. A complete and total farfarama. Um, yes and no. Mm. I was born in Melbourne. Yeah. Um, and I spent my first four years here. Uh-huh. In Melbourne. In Melbourne and the Dandenongs. Yeah. And, um, yeah, then we went to Queensland. And I'm thinking, you don't know this story, do you? No. no? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, my parents were both in the family, the, the cult up in the Dandenongs. And so oh, I, I still don't know what Anne Hamilton Byrne and like there's a whole like this kind of weird story from you know, a lot of Melburnians will know it, like of this kind of weird woman called Anne Hamilton Byrne who decided she was the reincarnation of Jesus and um she falsely adopted a whole bunch of children, most of whom were children of drug addicts, um, and people who were mentally ill because she had this network of psychiatrists and nurses and things that would kind of give her these young babies that had been, quote-unquote, put up for adoption by their hopeless, often teenage addict mothers. And um, and ended up with about 12 of them up in Eildon, and there was this big police bust about 19... Did she have good intention? Well, other than that she was like, Jesus... <laughs> <laughs> In that respect, I think she probably would say that she did. Or did you you think it was more like cheap labour? No, it wasn't so much about labour. It was just about her family. It was called the family. And so everyone was part of her family. And the, the obligation of being part of the family was that you had to adore her. And treat her like the guru. Um, Have you seen Wild Wild Country? No. You haven't? No. Well, it's a pretty good thing on Netflix about a, a cult. Okay. That, that 
you would know about this cult too. Anyway, I don't yeah. want to. I, yeah, just, yeah. I don't want to take away from no, the story. No. Anyway, you can just put that one in yeah, there yeah. and watch it later. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, long story short. Um, the police ended up doing this big bust in and broke into this house in Eildon and, and basically, you know, rescued all these children who had grown up believing that they were brothers and sisters and that they were the daughters of this woman and cho- and sons of this woman. And in actual fact, they weren't. How many? It was like 12 or something Okay. at the time. Um, and they all ended up in, you know the state institutions and their lives were just as fucked after that as they were before pretty much um but yeah my family was like completely entrenched in all of that and um my father died in 2013 and he was still a member of it but my mum introduced him to it um before I was born so back in the 60s and then she came to the realisation when I was about four and my brother was about five that, you know, she had one of those moments of like... An aha moment. An aha moment and just literally came and like kidnapped us and we drove to Queensland and hid for probably four or five years. Ended up in Canberra. So I spent most of my childhood from there on in Canberra. Oh my (laughs) golly gosh. (laughs) Good on your mum. Well, maybe I not. I don't know. Mm. It's, the cults were pretty big back yeah, then. definitely good on mum. Definitely. She was very brave. Yeah. Because she had nothing. Like, I remember she turned up um, with her little two-door Toyota Corolla, white Toyota Corolla. And I remember when we stopped, the first stop, she opened up the boot and there was three white garbage bags with hers and mine and my brother's initials on them. And that was like our stuff, like one each garbage bag full of clothes and various incidentals and yeah she didn't know where she was going or what she was doing so this was the stuff that you had while you were within the community the whatever no i don't know where she she just got from somewhere yeah yeah don't know we didn't live there we weren't one of the children that were pretended to be adopted by like i you know i had a mother and a father yeah so there was kind of two levels of children that were affected there were those who were kind of they've got the surname hamilton burn um and then there were those who were other mem- families of the cult members who grew up like in their own families but still part of this whole big cult um but we had been there so when i mentioned there was this network of psychiatrists in melbourne that used to literally give her broken people (laughs) my mum was one of those broken people so mum had been in psych hospitals and things often like in her late um early 20s um and um yeah it was through one of these psychiatrists that she met Anne. and when she died she died last year when she died I went through a whole bunch of her writing and I found this thing that she'd written where she wrote about how she'd never experienced love like she received from from Anne and a lot of people say the same thing about those kind of cult gurus and leaders. They've, they've got, obviously, they're always really charismatic, and but they've got that ability to completely um, heal at some level broken people through just their, the act of bestowing attention, mm-hmm. I think, and love and, you know, single-focused, compassionate empathy and, and attention mostly presence that um that kind of really healing power of just being really present with someone 
but it just often gets so you know fucked up really and it did with mum and they used to take LSD and they used to have these kind of like purge sessions where they would reveal all their inner secrets which were, then became evidence and and ammunition that could be used against them to keep them afraid and keep them um is, in have you heard of the, is it the rahashimi yeah yeah was that yeah. a cult yeah that was, was the one that Wild Wild Country is uh, about. Okay, yeah, and it yeah, sounds yeah. exactly like what you're talking. They're about. all very similar, actually. This is where you know, like, it, they're all very, very similar. They have lots of very common characteristics. It's this utter devotion to someone who's ultimately a total narcissist, um, but who is very, very good at making you feel special, um, and you can't leave. You can't escape, and so. But when you say you can't escape. Is there? Do you think there is there's a level of threat? Like what? What is, what think, is the stopping you from escaping? Like I'll kill you, or is it? Like, um, uh, look, I think it depends. I think in some maybe that, but more it's often withholding, like withholding fam- access to family. You know, if you don't go out as a whole family, then you end up losing kind of your connections. So Mum was definitely scared. Yeah. Um, she was, but what she was scared of was that they would come and get us. Mm-hmm. And because at the time, this was in the 70s, don't want to reveal my age, um, <laughs> this was in the 70s, it was illegal, it was not possible, it was not, it was not possible for a woman to take children out of Australia if the father hadn't consented, but it was possible for the father to take the children out of Australia without the mother's consent. What? Yeah, that law only changed like sometime in the 70s. And so she just became this incredibly paranoid that we would get literally stolen off the street and then my father would end up with custody, essentially. You know, like those melodramatic stories of Mm. people who get ended up overseas and what have you. But it didn't happen. We stayed with her. Um, in, and then I grew up in a very kind of boring Canberra suburb, doing boring <laughs> everyday things like going to school and coming home again. But did you think about it? Not really, no. She was very obsessed. Um, not so much with, a little bit with them, but with my dad as well, because he stayed and he was um, very like compliant with the whole cult thing. Um, it obviously really fits some people's mode of thinking or whatever the blueprint is inside of you because yeah. there's a lot of people drawn to it. Yeah, yeah. I think it's... And not for right or wrong. I don't, I don't, I haven't, I don't have yeah. any... Yeah, We are a community. I was just saying this to a friend of mine. That we are at the, our core level. We like the group. Yeah, and I think it's that... Look, you know, I'm no expert by all, by any means of like other cults and things, but I think it's that um, it's the broken people that that end up there, and the, who have lost that ability or never had that nurturing or that sense of connection or that sense of belonging. And I don't really know about my mum's childhood that much, but I know she was very unhappy. Um, and yeah, it just was in. I don't know. There's something something on offer that's this unconditional love or the experience of being unconditional of, love and being part of something and being important. Because it my, I don't have any experience with it other than Wild Wild Country. <laughs> <laughs> to go and watch that. Is that a movie or a um It's like a 10-part series. series. Oh, right, it's yeah. unbelievable. Like they, but where I, was, where I was going with it was, like there was a lot of people who 
because it was the whole thing was documented really from start to finish and it's it's there's a lot of educated smart seemingly normal people who are right on board with this movement yeah yeah. you know and so like you you as you're saying that the broken part yeah what I got from that was no, there, there were people who just wanted to make a change or make a, yeah. a new, a new beginning or a new way of life. Yeah, was sick yeah. of the old way. Yeah, sometimes they start very idealistically. You know, this idea that we're going to create this community that's going to just be utopia and full of love and not bring any of the kind of bad stuff from the yeah, other world in. World. Yeah, <laughs> so, and often that is how it starts, like a dictator. Mm, that's right. Mm. Yeah, so that was my kind of um, initial experience of Melbourne um, and most particularly the hills, Dandenongs. Yeah. Um, And, yeah, but then Canberra just, you know, just a Canberra kind of went to school. So normal primary school. Normal primary school, school. normal high school, yeah. And and so, so obviously somewhere through here, you were proved to be quite an academic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's funny because I think that we all have talents. Yeah. Obviously, every single person on the planet has something that's, you know, their thing. Um, and I think for me, I it was kind of a bit of a double-edged sword for me because I did well at school, but I was quite... I mean, my, you know, I kind of was a bit flippant. My home life was still tr- difficult. Like my mother was still broken, <laughs> yeah. potentially potentially even more so. Um, so there was a lot of violence. There was a lot of, you know, like, there was a lot of um, un- unpredictability and uncertainty and stuff at home. So I kind of threw myself into school because it gave me a sense of self-esteem and, you know, people told me I was good and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So mm. I became, I probably would have done well at school regardless, but if I turned, if I'd grown up in a kind of fairly <laughs> normal kind of family, I may have just been an average student because I would have just gone out and had fun as well, but yeah. I just didn't really do any of that. I just kind of studied and excelled and became very obsessive about, in. yeah, yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> if I didn't get, you know, something with a nine in front of it, I'd be very upset and mm. all that stuff, yeah. I think that's trait still around a little bit now, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> no. Mm. I'm getting better. I'm gone down to eight. Okay. Eight's okay, yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Three quarters. <laughs> the other day I got a 70-something and I was like, oh, that's cool. Uh, yeah, but <laughs> so, yeah. internally it wasn't. <laughs> no, no, it was actually. Oh, it was that good. was what was really cool about it. Yeah. It actually was like, oh, yeah, fair enough. Yeah, yeah that's about as much effort as I put into that one. <laughs> So I'm learning how to bring in, you know, different things to counter that because it's it's kind of can be good, but it's actually can be quite destructive as well. Oh, it's it has the appearance of being good, yeah, you know, because outwardly you're so successful, but inwardly you're totally, you know, war, war. Yeah, yeah, obsessed. Yeah, yeah. So, um, okay, so you were really good at school. Yeah. <laughs> And um, now I want to just track in here because I know that you became a journalist. Yes. Now, was this said, like, did you know through school? Did you know this is really weird story is that I became a journalist when I was uh, about 25. Mm -hmm. I went back to uni and kind of ended up, you know, applying for this journalism course, which was RMIT. 
nearly didn't get in. That's another whole another story about how I only sort of winged it to get into the course at the first place. Um, it was very, very competitive and, um, and kind of, you know, settle in to become a journalist. And then I was going through some papers. So hold on, what happened between 18 and 25? <laughs> <laughs> we'll get back to that. Okay. Um, when um, I was going through some papers later, I must have been, I don't know how old, like in my late 20s or something. And I found a school assignment that I had written when I was 13 that I had no recollection of writing, um, but it was clearly my handwriting, so it was me. Yeah. It was back, again, telling my age, there's no such mm-hmm. computers then. Um, and the assignment was to think about something you'd like to do when you grow up and go and interview someone who does that job and then write a day in the life of. And I wrote a day in the life of a newspaper reporter. And I had gone and found a newspaper reporter to talk to, and I had written a very what turned out to be a very accurate account of what a day in the life of a newspaper reporter would be at 13. But I don't remember doing it. You don't remember I at all? I don't remember doing it. Isn't that nuts? It, it was nuts. It was kind of like, holy... Like, I actually thought that it was kind of like, oh, you know, I was meandering around in my life a bit lost. Like, there's a short answer to your question about what happened between 18 and 25. A lot of lost time. Um, and then kind of, I really got to get my shit together. So I better, you know, go to university because I hadn't been to university. Yeah. Or I'd enroll, but dropped out. And um, what will I do? Oh, any mean, I'll just pick this course because it sounds good. Nearly didn't get in. They did get in. It was weird. But the like, catalyst was reading the 13... No, the, that was the, afterwards. Oh, it was after? After I'd done all that. So really, yeah. it was always it in. Was, it was in my destiny. Wow, it's like something. You, your 13-year-old higher self knew. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. That is a bit weird, isn't it? It's kind of cool. Well, I don't know, because when I was a kid, I always wanted to be a journalist. Ah, Yeah. why didn't you? Because um, I don't know about that, but uh, I'm dyslexic and it was never picked up at school. Ah, oh, shit. And I failed English, yeah. maths, all those important things that I was supposed to be good at. Yeah, yeah. And I just... Went no, well, obviously that's not it. But I was the theatre studies was easy because yeah. you'd have to write. Well, actually, there's a lot of journalism where you don't have to write too. A la this, you know, broadcast journalism. Yeah, I suppose. But yeah, to get in yeah. at that time too, it was very like English, English, English. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you yeah. were at RMIT. Yep. And was that fun? Yeah, it you was awesome. You talked to it like a duck to water. Yeah, and then I got a job at Time magazine. Stop it. Hold on. Back <laughs> up. You graduated straight out of... Excuse me for yeah. my coughing. Yeah. <clears throat> I don't normally have this husky voice. I only have a cold. Mm-hmm. Um, no, it was before I finished my course. So You were offered a job before you finished... I know, I was pretty lucky. That's awesome. It was pretty lucky. It was the Australian, you know, it was the Australian version. So what? So it wasn't Time like, magazine. Like the- <laughs> Don't talk it down. <laughs> it wasn't like the big, the big league. Um, yeah, no, my tutor at uni, who's still a good mate of mine today, Matthew Rickardson, he, um, I was kept pestering him saying, because I was working at the time too, because I had a, you know, I had been working, so I couldn't really just go into the full-time student life. I couldn't financially afford to do that. So I was kind of doing my degree part-time and all of that. And then um, he, and I was pestering him, I was like, I'm going to be 30 by the time I finish. No one's going to give me a job. And he says, yeah, yeah, it's probably right. (laughs) 
and um, he said, come, he was working at time. So he said, come and I'll introduce you to um, the editor and see if you can do like some work experience. So I went there and, and they said, sure, come and come for a week in the holidays and do some work experience. And I turned up to do this work experience and they were just, um, they'd only ever had like high school kids doing work experience. So they just kind of sent me down to the library to read magazines. Time and magazines. I, yeah. <laughs> and I thought, I've taken a week off work to do this unpaid. I can do, you know, I'm not doing this shit. So I just went around and harassed all the journalists and said, can I help you? What can I do? Can I do something? Do you need anything? And again, pre-internet, like they were like, oh, I really need that quote that, you know, Paul Keating said about such and such. And I was like, yep, on it. And I just jump on the train, got to the State Library, go through the microfilm, find the quote, come back, say, there you go. And they're like, oh, that, what else? Got something else? Got something <laughs> So at the end of the week, and I wasn't doing it strategically. I was just doing it so I wasn't bored. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and um, at the end of the week, they said, come and pay your crap, like some crappy entry-level salary, um, but come and start have a, have a job here. And I was like, awesome. Writing. <laughs> yeah. Wow, that's perfect. It was perfect. It was great. It was such a great grounding like it is, you know, for all the – it's formulaic and all of that sort of stuff, all of those critiques of time. Um, what I loved about it and what I took with me for the rest of my career was this absolute obsession on accuracy, you know, obsession. Like well, you have to – You mean like – you don't mean grammatically. You mean getting the facts yeah. right within the story. Yeah. Yeah. Both. Well, both, both. yeah. But the grammar was kind of just that, assumed. That, that has to be. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You're obviously good at English. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> um, it's a spelling mistake. So here. I did have yeah. one story that made it all the way to the international edition. So every now, you know, they'd kind of hover and have a look and see the local stories from all their local editions, and that they don't really have an Australian edition anymore. But um, and one story that had already been published in Australia, and it got um, sent to to be published in the international edition. It was about this whaling thing in Japan. And I got a call at um, like six o'clock on a Saturday morning from the fact checker in New York that was just checking the name of the department store that I had mentioned in um, Tokyo because I'd referred to it as a department store and then she'd found some source that described it as a convenience store. Something else. Yeah. Like not was sort of the, the same. It was like a synonym. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're like having an argument about what was the correct thing to call it. And, um, yeah, they have, full, I don't know if they still do, but then they had full-time fact-checkers. Like that was your first job when you joined Time. If you in New York, in, in America, you would become a fact-checker and you would spend a couple of years fact-checking and then you'd become a reporter and then you'd finally get to be a writer. In Australia, it was a bit different because there were so few of us that we all just did everything. That must have been quite a difficult job without the internet. yeah. Well, so what you have to do at the end of the week when your story was getting published, that the last thing that would happen before it was sent to the printer was that the um, art department would print it out because they would have laid it all out with the artwork and things. They would print it out and they'd give you a copy and you had to take a red pen and you had to tick every fact in it, every name that you had gone back through your notes and you had triple checked. And then at the bottom of it, you had to sign it. And if you spelt someone's name wrong... They said, if you spell someone's name wrong and it ends up in Time magazine and the name is spelled incorrectly, that's a sackable offence. Oh, my yeah. God. <laughs> 
because there's no excuse to spell someone's name wrong. Even if their name is, you know, John Smith, you can still say, is that J-O-H-N? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And no yeah. one, and, and someone said this to me um, uh, at the time, no one gets offended when you ask them, can I just check how you spell your name? Even if it is something like, you know, John mm. Smith. People go, oh, that's awesome. And so I got into this habit of like you'd write well, it. Well, this suits your laser-like... Um. <laughs> <laughs> You'd write it on a piece of paper, like if you, you know, like if we were, if I was interviewing you, I'd write it down on a piece of paper, and I would actually show you. Say, is that correct? Like I wouldn't even rely on my ears because I know with my name Camina, right? Yeah. I I watch people. They say, how, how do you spell that? And I say K, and they write C, and I say no, no mm-hmm. K, and then I say I, and they write A. I say no I, and they're like what, what, what? So even if you're spelling out the letters, people still have already decided how yes. to spell it. Well, they're the, already writing it down. seeing it or yeah. something. Yeah. Yeah. So I just learned that trick of like you actually show the person and then when they say yes, then you tick it in your notebook. So you know, okay, done. But I was so paranoid. One day I did actually spell. So hold on. You <laughs> One got- day I did actually spell someone's name. I didn't spell her name wrong, but she had three names. She was like Mary Jane. I thought I always thought I'd always remember Mary Jane someone. Like a double but last it wasn't name. like a hyphen. Mm. There were just three separate names, but that was her name and that was always how she was quite she was quite a prominent person in Australia. But at the time we had an American editor, so he didn't really know her. So someone along in the subbing process had just taken out the middle name because they thought it was kind of oh, like a redundant right. thing. And I hadn't noticed, even though I'd gone through and done the mm-hmm. sign off, yeah. I hadn't noticed until it was printed the next oh. week. And I was just, I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to get the sack. That's it. And I, I went in. I rang her first and said, I'm so sorry. Because also, how, whoever gets quoted in Time magazine, you don't get quoted in Time magazine every day unless you're, you know, <laughs> really high profile. Um, so I was just so sorry. And she said, don't worry, it's fine. Like, she was really sweet, which is lovely. And then I went into my boss and said, I made this mistake and I've spoken to her and she's all right and he was like yeah it's fine so i don't even know if it's even true that you get the sack <laughs> i was just so sure i oh, was going to <laughs> yeah the attention to detail I, I, it's not my strongest i mean i'm pretty good with attention to detail but i don't know yeah that's next level it's hard with dyslexia yeah well on because it's kind of the same so, part of your brain that's got to be able to right yeah 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 but um so the article on whaling that made it yes. into the international, was that a big break for you or was it? No, it was more just that um, it was this article about some Australian scientists that had gone into super, supermarket slash department store. That's right. I said it was a supermarket, but apparently it's a department store. Anyway big mistake um they'd gone into the supermarket as they told me and bought some um whale meat Mm. that was packaged as whale meat now i'm just seeing if i can remember the details and at the time under the international law japan could you know hunt x number of x type of whales and then oh after we've done our scientific research not then we can you know yeah. Rather than discard the meat, we mm-hmm. can use the meat for um, on sale to consumers. But humpback whales were not one of these, or blue whales, I think it was blue whales, were on the kind of no-no, not even allowed to kill them, let alone... Not for scientific, and I think, no. 
And so they'd gone and they'd done DNA tests on this meat that they'd found in the supermarket and discovered that it was all these kind of species that Japan were not even supposed to have hunted, let alone put in as the meat. So it was quite, it was a good science story and there were some Australian scientists that did it, so I wrote it up as an Australian story, but because I guess it had that angle of the, you know, the whole brouhaha over Japan whaling and stuff. Did your colleagues um, think that this was a, a, you know... Oh, no, they're all, journalists are pretty cynical mob. But even though... Just like, yeah, whatever. Oh, yeah, yeah. no, no. And even if it was celebrated, it wasn't celebrated. Yeah. It'd be like, That's right. I'm a bit jealous more than yeah, anything. It wasn't like a cover story or anything. Okay, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was just like page 22 or something. It's pretty awesome still. Yeah, I was still impressed. Yeah. I got a copy of it somewhere. Yeah, yeah I bet. <laughs> <laughs> so how long did you stay at time for? Three years. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, The Australian. The Australian newspaper here. Out of Sydney? Out of Melbourne. Out of Melbourne? Yep. Out of Melbourne. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because Times head office when I joined was in Melbourne, and then they moved it to Sydney, and I didn't want to move to Sydney, so I stayed in Melbourne as their kind of Melbourne reporter. So, sorry, just... Yeah. Uh, was there a specific area of that you would concentrate on? Or you could, you, it could be anything. It could be anything, yeah. Really? Yeah, yeah. How yeah. crazy. What an un, what an unreal job. I know. You don't know I what know. you're going to be putting I your know. head into. I know. I, I mean, know. that's exciting. It is. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. you're working for the Australian. Well, I was working for time and then they moved to Sydney and oh, I didn't want to, I Sydney, want to yeah. go to Sydney. So I stayed in Melbourne as their kind of like Melbourne reporter. But I was still pretty young in my career and what that meant was that I was working from home and I just felt like, you know, the the weekly pace of the weekly magazine, it's sort of like the big stories would break on Monday and Tuesday and then you've got to find an angle that's going to last till the next week. And I just felt this sense of like, I actually want to go to a newsroom where something happens and you react, you know, like the kind of traditional journalist kind of idea. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> breaking yeah. so yeah so i went to the australian i've got that in spades what sorry say that again got that in spades what does that mean <laughs> um you know that term that term about i don't know where does it, where does that saying come from like bridge or something like when you've i've got it in spades i've got like a run of spades and i'm gonna smash the park out okay, of this right. game. Yeah. is it bridge i've never played bridge, uh, yeah, but. something like that i don't even know that um oh i've got yeah, a full so hand I, in spades man yeah yeah, yeah, okay. yeah it's so, like yep, i'll just bang. go ace king queen jack yep. and clean everyone up yep. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good, good. Yeah. um yeah, so I went to yeah no. What I mean was that that experience of being in a newsroom where you you know something oh, happens you, and you have to react. Yes, I did get that experience from being at the Australian definitely, because like time it was a bureau because the Australian's head office was in um, Sydney also, so there was more people. Obviously, there was about fifty at the time, and but that was still pretty small. So if something happened and the senior guys were on something else or on their day off or whatever it was you so for example like I remember I was at home one day um, and I got this phone call you got to get to Tasmania and I was like I can't and there was something I was doing that I didn't want to stop and so so were you reporting on something else no no no, I was at home like it was a Sunday oh yeah and um, but there was something I was doing and I um I said, I can't. And so the, you know, 
phone hang up and you obviously rang around a few others and then I, an hour later I get another call I don't care what you're doing get to the airport now and I was like why what's happened or some guys just shooting people and I was like okay it's all I knew and I was like just grab my bag and get in the car and drive to the airport and then like listening to the radio can you turn the radio on you didn't know what you were flying to nah it was Martin Bryant yeah yeah Martin Bryant so like you know get off the airport I remember I got on the plane and there were like 12 deaths and then I got off the plane and there was like 20 and then I drove to Port Arthur and there was like 25 and then it was happening it was like literally every hour we'd get these updates and it was like now there's this many now there's this many 35 36 people if you count the person who had a heart attack when they heard that their son or daughter had died that's horrific Mm. um how do you go arriving at a scene like that? Um, you're so full of adrenaline. Um, and the adrenaline is actually... I mean, firstly, you know you're going to be safe because the police are not going to not make you safe, right? So yeah. there's not any of that sense of like you're in physical danger. Or I didn't have that anyway. I mean, it's not like a war sort of scenario. Um so what had happened was he was still at large at the time. Like he, I don't know if you remember the details, but he was at large all that night. He had gone out and done his, you know, shooting spree, and then he'd gone back to this cottage called the Seascape Cottage, which is was owned by an elderly couple, and he was kind of, you know, behind the behind the door firing off shots at the coppers who were I kind remember, of across yeah, the road firing yeah, shots back. Yeah. And they assumed that he had them as hostages. So they didn't storm it because they mm-hmm. were worried about this, their lives. As it turned out, he'd killed them hours earlier and he was just by himself, but they didn't know that. So he they killed were, them in the cottage? Yeah. He killed them first. They were the first he killed. Oh, and he was always going to go back to that cottage. Yeah. Yeah, I think he stayed there, if I remember rightly. Like he kind of like he, oh, he okay. booked it the night before as like a, an accommodation or something. But maybe that's wrong. I can't remember. Um, now that's weird that I don't remember that detail because I was obsessed with that story. Well, I became can I obsessed with every this, little detail? There's a lot of people. <laughs> I always like to say there's a lot of people that say that there's no way that he could have done that much damage alone Mm. you are the Mm. first person that I've ever spoken to Mm. that could say yes or no to that well I've never heard this lot of people who said that to be honest that he was a simpleton he was simple of he wasn't a fool have you heard this yeah well he definitely has a documented low IQ and that someone that IQ because were they I mean this is terrible I can't believe I'm saying it, but they were all pretty well uh, executed that someone of that IQ could be that good a shot at, at, and kill that many people I think it depends on what your equipment is well I don't really know but yeah I, he I'm had just, some pretty serious equipment right like I don't think he needed to be that like I'm not saying that he yeah, didn't yeah. or did I'm just <laughs> no, no 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 <laughs> thinking you know what i mean like it, yeah. you just spray and sh- bullets a lot of people just were killed through spray and bullets particularly in the cafe like there was a, this broad arrow cafe where he went into and he just literally just went Shh, and so it wasn't like he went right up to you know, i'm going to kill you and you and you he did he did do that as well in other points but in the cafe it was just a spray it was just a machine gun oh yeah so okay it was just yeah. whoever he got whatever we got kind of thing right was there any survivors 
Yeah. Oh, hundreds. Oh, well, okay. There was then like that, 700 that, that people bully, there. Bully puts a floor in the store. Yeah, that's why I said I've never actually heard that story Oh, before. I have, because people yeah. say, oh, yeah, the government were using it as a push to get the gun oh, thing Oh, you hang out with lot. different people than mm. I do. All the girls are, you know. Yeah. No, if only. And, you know. And actually, a, a journalist, I don't know who it was. It might have been someone like... Oh, I don't know, you know who it was, but a bit of a doyen of Australian journalism had this um, thing once where she said, um, most of the conspiracy theories in the world, you don't have to worry about believing them or not, because the truth is that if they were true, there would just be leaks everywhere. Like people just leak, mm. right? So if there'd been one other person involved in the Martin Bryant shooting, his sister or mate down at the pub or someone would have said at some point between now and then that this has happened. Does that make sense? Yes, but I'm going above that and saying that the people that I've spoken to (laughs) (laughs) said that it it wasn't a Joe Blow. It was a marksman. Yeah, right. You know, but so like, the, like, fuck the, knows. I mean, yeah. that's just, no, you know, it I just don't came, came so. to my brain because no, of I don't think so. Topic. No, I don't think no, so either. I, don't I think, I think so. exactly what you just said. Yeah. I have a friend that always sends me this fucking flat earth shit. Yeah. And I'm like, how can every international pilot yeah. in the world be <laughs> on the, in on the secret? Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. There's no, just, just, just yeah. fuck. To, you know, when you think about how... I mean, like, there's lots of shit that happens that we never hear about. Totally. Um, there's no question. But, you know... It's fun to think about. It's, anyway. People always have a motive to leak. Yeah. There are so many people who have a motive to leak. Even if it's just for their own infamy. They want to be on telly. <laughs> so, you'd have to... Your conspiracy theory has to be so good that really only three people know about it. Three. Well, you know... Any more than that, and I reckon you're, you're stuffed. Like, there's a kind of a critical mass. Oh, yeah. They say you don't tell anyone. Yeah. Just no one's to know. Yeah. But <laughs> once, if you've got, like, three, you can kind of know that if it comes out, you can kind of look yeah, each other know. in the yeah. eye. Yeah. But once you've told 10 or 20 people or 10 or 20 people know, I mean, even in when I moved away from journalism and went into corporate communications, like, that was the, you know, the company thing. It's like, if we do not want this piece of company information to be leaked, then three people have to know it. Because any more than that, and it's gonna, you, you just lose control over it. Because wow. people know they can tell someone with safety. Because wow. no one can know it's them. Yes. So they'll tell their partner, and yeah, then their yeah, partner yeah. will tell their... Oh, all right, we do agree. So... Yes. Um, <laughs> flew down there yeah, into episode. probably the biggest... Yeah, at the time it was Catastrophe pretty, that we've seen. Yeah, it was pretty full on. And it was very distressing. Like the short answer to your question is you just get into this kind of autopilot of like, you know, I'm just going to file and worry about what everyone else is filing and where can I be and how can I get the story and how can I find Walter Mikak, if you remember him. Walter Mikak was the surviving member of the family where there was Nanette and the two kids, Alana and Madeline, who had been killed. <clears throat> and what was particular about that story was um, that they were, you know, three and six, the girls, but that he had actually hunted them down. Like she was running and he 
and one of the girls ran behind a tree and he actually got out of the car that he was driving to actually walk behind the tree and shoot her. Um, whereas he could have just kept driving and left her and she would have survived. So he was the father of those girls and the husband of Nanette. And so he became like the story. Like he became the kind of figurehead of all of that pain and grief. And he was it was just a bloodbath in terms of like an attempt to get, you know, like every day you use it. What, where's Walter? Where's Walter? Who's going to, you know, who's going to get the Walter right. Mikak story? Yeah. And then I remember me and a couple of other, I can't even remember where they were from, like the Herald or somewhere, had sort of tracked down where he was staying um, with some mates and, you know, thought we were doing, you know, we were on the, on the pulse and driving down and we're going to do it. We're going to bang on the door and we're going to beg him for an interview and we'll do it together because we both know anyway. So there's no point in fighting each other. Let's just do it together. And, and which is very rare, that kind of cooperation. Um, and <laughs> as we're driving down the road, there's a chopper flying overhead. Oh, no, yeah. Look up the chopper. The chopper lands in this backyard and Ray Martin. Ray Martin comes out, goes in, gets the $100,000 interview with Walter. I thought you were going to say Darren, but... Yeah, no, right. <laughs> the time it was Ray was the man. Ray was so that was it. That was the end of any communication with Walter. So that kind of stress, because you've got to like justify to your newsroom why you're missing it, why you're not there, why you... Well, what about even having to ask someone? Like, I, I have str- yeah. I, I struggle to ask somebody, hey, do you want to be on my podcast? <laughs> You know, and it's nothing but to have to ask somebody who's in yeah. a moment, of yeah. a, a full-on situation. Yeah, do you want yeah. to talk? Is it difficult to ask that, um, or do you learn that at journalism school? No, they don't ever really teach you that. But I think my and look over time, I've learned a lot about this because I've studied trauma quite extensively now from my own trauma experiences and from from all of you know just my interest has become trauma and what I now understand and what I think I always did do sort of intuitively was that it's actually about the the choice um so when you've been through a traumatic experience by definition that trauma you've lost power like you are powerless in that situation otherwise it's not a trauma situation right so either, you know, a tsunami's come and hit you or there's been a car accident or someone's come up with a knife, you know, to your throat or something. And in that moment, in that traumatic moment, you have lost um, your agency or your autonomy or your ability to make um, decisions. And so part of psychological first aid is actually about making sure that the person having left that experience has as much ability to make decisions as possible. So whatever that might be, um, you know, do you want a cup of tea or a cup of coffee? You know, do you want to sit on that chair or that chair? Whatever, you know, like that's just... How do we make it If there's one one thing I'd love your listeners to know, if you want to do ever in a situation we need to do psychological first aid, do not go in and say, I'll organise everything. I will tell you where to go and what to do. Okay, that was my bad. That's all right. Sorry. No. You were saying? Um, I think just the key kind of thing to know is that if someone has had a traumatic experience, like as much as possible, support them to start getting their power back, their power over what they want to do, where they want to go, how long they want to be somewhere. So So when you say power, is really choice. Choice, yeah. Um, 
And so what I did after Port Arthur was my job was to kind of find the 35 people, the 35 families and tell the story about those kind of fateful, you know, moments that led them to be in that place in that time. Um, So I had to ring 35 families in three days. And how I approached it was I just said, this is who I am. This is what I'm doing. This is the story that I'm writing. Um, Would you like to me to I'd love to talk to you if you'd want to talk to me and some said yes and some said no and if I was sad I cried um in fact I cried often as I was asking them because I was so full of grief and that wasn't put on like that was genuine so I think people responded to it authentically and I also like I had a policy and I still I always had this policy which is I will show you afterwards what I write Mm-hmm. And if I have time, like providing there's time and you want to see it, um, you'll get to see every word that I write. And you don't have a power of veto, but if there's an inaccuracy, you tell me and I'll change it. And the thing that, and this I know from my own experience, having been on the other side of the story as well, it pisses you off when things are reported inaccurately. Mm. It's, li- it's like the spelling of the name thing. It's like a... Um, it's just like another wound. And because you're so wounded, it probably just in, is in, inflamed. It's probably not like, you know, in a normal in situation. Um, so the number of people that just express so much gratitude that they were able to say, no, my son's six, not seven. Mm. Or, you know, and, the, and often journalists, and I hate to admit this, but it is true, will just rely on the clippings. So anything that's been said in the past in, in any sort of story is draw, automatically yep. true. Mm-hmm. And then they just repeat and re-perpetuate these inaccuracies. Unless, of course, they work for Time magazine. Mm, mm, the fact check. <laughs> No, it is very fr- like even uh, I was a little Q and A recently, and something of uh, of mine was misquoted. Yeah, and I was like, in the moment, I wanted to yeah. strangle the guy. Yeah, that's not what I said to you ten minutes yeah. ago in private. And it's like an assumption. It often it happens from assumptions. Um, like one thing that happens for me, and I had another experience of it recently too. And I read something was people have wrote about me being at the beach on the tsunami as Kamina Lyle was holidaying, and I was, I was ah, fucking working. Right, yeah, like I had yeah. actually, it was ten o'clock on Sunday morning when it happened, and I had already filed three stories. Like I'd got up at six o'clock in the morning, and I was like, I'd almost done a full day's work. <laughs> Okay, hold on. We just just jumped from Port Arthur to a tsunami. And because someone said it once, it's just been said again and again and again. And it's so petty. It's like, who cares, right? But it matters to me. Totally, because it's missing. It's not true. Yeah. Yeah. On a beach lying there. It's like you're on a beach. It's a holiday destination. You were there, therefore you were on holidays. So it's a kind of an easy assumption to make, but it's that not having the time or the ability to just, or or care factor, to just go and triple check every single fact makes a massive difference. If you can do that to someone who is a victim of a situation where they've been completely, had all their power stripped away from them, and, and you don't do it to win brownie points. You do it because it's the right thing to do. But mm. it builds so much trust and rapport that it's unbelievable. Well, and it's authentic journalism. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. we can. All, it's not your idea of a situation. That's right. It's the truth of their situation. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Um, okay, so that's what a phone call on a Sunday afternoon. Mm. That was for you. Mm. So. 
Now, all right, I'm just okay. We'll leave Port Arthur. We'll come back. And um, so, you how much longer did you stay in Melbourne after that? Um, so, I went to Sydney for the Olympics. I looked after all the papers of the Olympics coverage, so I was there for two years. That was awesome. It was an amazing experience, just unbelievable, like a a once-in-a-lifetimer. And then that was a hard work. Like That was, you know, 70, 80-hour weeks, packing it in. Um, and Interviewing so, athletes. No, I was like the editor, so I was like running, planning the, the whole coverage and then, you know, getting other journalists to cover stories. So I did a bit of story writing myself, but not so much. So you were like the general in the, in the yeah. bunker. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Had to know everything when it was going to happen and, yeah. Orchestrating. Yeah, yeah. cool. Yeah. Um, so amazing experience. Amazing experience. And then I think it was kind of because of that. See, those days, I'm not sure if it's even different now, but in those days the culture was there wasn't really any kind of transparent, like it's not really news rooms and news organisations, not really corporations like I've since known it, you know, where there's transparency. and (laughs) (laughs) So... I just literally got a tap on the shoulder one night as I was working towards the end of the Olympics um, and it was the editor-in-chief and he said, do you want to go to Bangkok? And I said, yeah. And he was like, okay. And then he went away and I was like filing a story. So I filed my story and I went into his office and I said, did you just offer me what I thought you just offered me? And he was like, yep. So that's how I got my posting to Southeast Asia. See, this is why I think that journalism would be such a great job. Yes. Because you don't know what... Oh, yes. It's just so See, much excitement. See, that still really wants oh, to Oh, this it. is exciting, you know. <laughs> oh, I'm going to Bangkok. Yeah, cool. So off you went. Yeah. Yes? Yes? No? Yes. Yes. About, you know, a few months later, took a bit of organizing with visas and all that. Yeah. But yeah, and I was in in Thailand for four and a half years. So did you? Now I have read your book, and it's unreal. Thank I you. mean, in in a, it's really the wrong words. It's a very compelling read on a traumatic experience. Uh, and I, I I say that because when you gave me the book, well, I asked for it. <laughs> um, it sat over there for a while, and I was reading another book, and I finished that book, and I went, okay. And I really didn't know what I was going to, yeah. the journey I was going on. Yeah. And to be honest, I couldn't put it down. Yeah. So, thank you, you know, for saying that. Kudos to your life story, yeah. but, and, and terribly, yeah, you were so honest throughout it. It was, yeah, yeah I couldn't put it down. Um, I, I lost my train of thought. I started on something then, and I completely That's right. We've kind of done a big jump because we've like lost a few years in between. But um, yeah, you were saying that like that's the great thing about journalism is that you can get to go anywhere and do anything. Yeah. And I absolutely agree. And it's absolutely like the most amazing privilege, you know, to be able to. When I was working as a journalist, I used to think, if I want to know the answer to a question, I can literally ring anyone in the world that I want to ring that might know the answer to this question and ask them. 
like they might not take my call, but I can actually just put in the call and say, "Hey, blah 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 blah." Because I with the they're like I'm from with the Australian, yeah, with time, that's right, blah, blah, blah. that's yeah. right. I'm you know yeah. I want to do a story about this. I'm interested in it. Um, and the other thing I learned through that period is that every subject is interesting. Every subject is interesting, no matter. What if you've got to go and do some boring science story about some molecule discovery or what have you, providing you find the person who is passionate about it, which there'll always be someone because mm-hmm. otherwise they wouldn't have bothered doing all that work. You find that person and talk to them, and then an hour later you're engrossed in the story of this molecule going, and really? <laughs> and then <laughs> because they're in fact, their passion becomes infectious. Yes. And so it is this extraordinary privilege that you get to kind of have these kind of um i don't know little glimpses it's like a voyeuristic really because you're kind of popping in and out of lives um and situations and stories and things. well on the passion <laughs> thing that you're just saying i used to have a theater teacher that used to say to me if you're not really doing what you're supposed to be doing on stage or if you're in the audience on the other side of that card if you're in the audience watching theater and you find yourself doing grocery lists yeah then the people on the stage aren't really committing to yeah, what they're doing. Yeah. But if you are on the stage and you really commit to tying your shoes, even as an audience member, that your commitment to doing it will be, you'll be drawn in. Yes, yes. So if someone's really drawn in, then you're drawn in. Yes. You can't help it. Yes, It's exactly. just energy. Yes. But if you're faking it in any way, then we're not with you. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Sort of similar to what you're saying. Yeah. 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 And it was such a privilege to to have, I was going to say that power, but in a way it is a very powerful thing that you've got because you can actually just pick up the phone and say, you know, I want to go and, I mean, I spent time looking for Aung San Suu Kyi. Like so she, what? <clears throat> Aung San Suu Kyi, before she became, you know, the um, public enemy number one. I don't know who that is. Was a, <laughs> no, that's all right. I'm going to tell you. <laughs> you do know. You just don't recognize her name. She's the Burmese leader, the charismatic Burmese leader that spent like years and decades under house arrest because of the Burmese military regime who placed her under house arrest because she was such a popular figure that... She won this um, 1989 elections in a landslide, and which meant that the military were no longer in power. So they responded by putting her under house arrest, and she stayed there for pretty much ever since. Um, but every now and again, they'd let her out, thinking that she was no longer popular, um, that they'd managed to clamp down on you know the information, and then you know, hundred thousand people would turn up on the day that she was released from prison, and they'd have to put her back in. Oh, she was always in house arrest mostly, um, put her back under house arrest. And she used to do interviews from her home with BBC journalists or what have you and talk about Burma and democracy. And Where is she <clears> now? Well, now she's in power. Oh, fantastic. Fuel. Well, no. <laughs> no, she'd become bad. <laughs> yes, because she's been part of this whole kind of like ethnic cleansing of the Rohingya Muslims out of East um, Western Burma that's just been heartbreakingly travesty, heartbreaking, heartbreaking crimes. So she's done a 180 on her beliefs or this is who she always was? Well, good question. Many more learned scholars than I are are grappling with that. Um, She's, it's true that she doesn't have as much power. Like she's 
co-sharing power with the same guys that have locked her under arrest. So she's essentially had what when people get kidnapped and they fall in love with their captors. Stockholm Syndrome. Stockholm Syndrome. Yeah. You could be right there. Something's happened. It's very, very strange. But it's also very complex because Burma is a... Um, now known as Myanmar, as a country, is actually like a lot of ex-colonial countries. Um, Their borders were created by the colonial rulers, the English. They're not natural borders. Um, There is a large ethnic people called the Burmese. And then there are these kind of states which are ethnically diverse, where there's things like the Rohingya and the Karen and the Karen and a whole bunch of other different ethnic peoples. And the Burmese have always been arrogant towards them. And Aung San Suu Kyi is Burmese. So this idea that we're somehow, I'm not saying that she necessarily has that kind of Aryan kind of attitude, but this sort of idea that the Rohingyas are somehow not really Burmese and they don't really belong here and they should be living in Bangladesh because they're Muslim and that's Bangladeshians and Muslims. It could well be that she just genuinely thinks, bugger them, they can go, they can go, they can piss off. But even if she thought that intellectually, she still has not spoken out against an absolute travesty of how these people were burned from their homes and beaten and chased out of the country. So, yes, but before that, before she became, this is only just in the last few years, before that happened, she was a bit of a darling of the Western media and I had the privilege of going into Burma and hiding my my, um, identity, not as in, you know, wearing a disguise or anything, but just not pretending I wasn't a journalist, pretending I was a tourist who happened to bump into her on one of her tours, even though it was all planned, um, and got to kind of meet her and... I mean, that's incredible. Was that scary? It was a little bit scary um, because I was questioned by the military police afterwards. Well, didn't you have anything on you or did you keep it all in your brain? I had my camera and I had... No, I I didn't write notes. I had a camera and I had photos. Um, I had been very, you know, calculating and strategic and I had gone to Bagan, which is like Angkor Wat of Burma, beautiful, beautiful area, big tourist area, and taken hundreds of photos. So there were hundreds of photos of Bagan on my camera, as there should have been anyway, because it's extraordinary. And then, of course, there were hundreds of photos of Aung San Suu Kyi, because who wouldn't take a photo of Aung San Suu Kyi if you just happened to bump into her mm-hmm. <laughs> in mm-hmm. a little remote village? <laughs> and who wouldn't speak to her? Right. Um, so I just played the kind of dumb, oh, wow, I'm so excited. And like, I just saw a rock star. Yeah. And I just got excited about seeing a rock star. And they kind of let me go um but yeah i was nervous until i left the country yeah well just i only reason i kind of get a sense of that is was when i was just in nicaragua yeah right i took all this equipment down and thought because i got the political unrest down there yeah, at the moment yeah. and i thought i'm going to get some uh podcast with some local podcast. people yeah. and find out really what's going on what happened well i met this uh older gentleman i had two people lined up to do it and before i talked with the older gentleman he sat me down and had a coffee with me and what he told me frightened me so much that i put all my gear away really <laughs> yeah he say you'll just end up getting arrested if you get caught at the airport yeah. with interviews that are anti um daniel otega yeah right now that they'll throw you in jail or they'll 
And couldn't you have uploaded it to the cloud and then deleted it or something? Uh, or was there not I, good internet? Or? No, probably if I was more savvy, I yeah. could have. But at the time, I just had my hard drives and I was just thinking that wasn't out. That, I didn't think of that, actually. Yeah. Because I didn't, after what he told me, I didn't want to do an anonymous interview with him and have any yeah. way that I could yes. put him in danger. Yes, yes. Because yes. local people were disappearing. Yes. And I was... And if you had got arrested then the ambassador would have been on it, you know? Like, yeah. your mum would have made a call to, you know, Julie Bishop if she, she was still the <laughs> foreign minister <laughs> and action would have been taken. But nothing know, for those guys. Yeah, but those yeah. guys, they just disappear and their families cry and get upset, but nothing actually happens. So anyway, from that one conversation, yeah. it gave me a whole new yeah. perspective and respect for journalists yeah. who go into yeah. hot areas to get stories to serve the people who are yeah. In, in just. Yeah. Yeah. So there you go. You've Scary. opened up a little bit of a sore... And when I say you, I, I mean me, because it's my sore and I started the conversation. But because I often do worry that the guy who drove me around, because I had a local driver, I never told him I was a journalist, so I gave him the same story too. Um, you were deep. And I often wonder ethically whether that was the right thing to do, like whether I would have been better telling him the truth and giving him the right to say yes or no. Um, I, but, you know, you don't know who to trust, right? So I'm just thinking I could just randomly pick some guy who's... Well, he might have already been working for the government. Yeah, exactly. But on the other hand, when I left and published my story, whether or not he had any kickback, I've, I've no way of knowing. But often I wonder that. And I often wonder if I was going to do it again, would I do it the same way? I think I was a little bit cowboy and a little bit naive in there, even though I kind of, I personally got away with it. And I can't look you straight in the eye and say, I know there were no consequences. Did you, um, so you used your name and then you published an article with under your name? Hmm. Yeah. Would it be good to have a double passport with a different yeah. double name? And then that's the ego of the journalist too, because you want to be like, I'm the one that went in, the only mm. person who's ever gone mm. in and interviewed mm. Aung San Suu Kyi. So I could have just not used my name. You're right. That would have been another ethical pathway. Or but no, then you I get mean, caught up no, in, if you went into the country with, uh, on a different... On a different passport, like yeah. Like a spy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but then you get charged with espionage right. and then you're in real shit. Yeah, okay, yeah. But um, <clears throat> no, I could have just not published it using my name. I could have. But then, you know, they would have seen the photos. They would have known where it was. They would have known that I was there. I mean, I, you have to kind of hope. Look, the driver had nothing to do with what you were doing. No, that's right. And I, and I kind of thought by not giving him any information, Better. then he would always be able to deny that he knew who the hell I was. Yeah. Um, but I just... Yeah, of course. It's an ethical dilemma, yeah, right? And yeah. I don't know if I made the right decision. And it's the only time I've ever been that... You know, that I, I do often, even though it was a long time ago, I do often wonder, fuck, what happened to that guy? I hope I didn't. I hope he's not still sitting in friggin' jail somewhere because of me. I really, <laughs> look, those regimes are so brutal on how they just don't care, yeah. but I would doubt. Yeah. And look, to be honest, it was the Australian newspaper. If it was CNN or something, like the, they would have cared, or BBC. But it was the Australian newspaper, and I remember the day it came out, it didn't even, like, make the front page because there was some other stupid 
story that trumped it. So I, even at the time, I was really disappointed that I got this kind of international scoop, but no one noticed. No one in Australia noticed. No one. In, so probably no one in Burma noticed as well. So did you? Did you get that scoop? Did you do that story when you were located in Thailand? Thailand yeah. Yeah. Um, and you were living. What was the? What's the city that you were living in? Bangkok. Bangkok. Yeah. And then you ended up falling in love with Golden Buddha Beach. Golden Buddha Beach. Yeah, Gop Pratong. And I couldn't get a gauge. Was that how far was that from Bangkok? Um, <clears throat> an overnight bus trip. So was that the place that you would commute to and from? Yep. Okay, because in my mind I was like, is it? Was there another city that they were in or was it no yeah, it was Bangkok? No, Bangkok. So you know how Thailand's got the kind of like bump and then it's got the like the, the leg down the side that ends up joining up with Malaysia, yeah. like the big long peninsula. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if you're going halfway down that peninsula, it's about halfway down. It's not as far as Phuket, but yeah, on the same, yeah. s- same side of the coastline, the West right. Coast. Yeah. And so it sounded like a, an absolutely gem of a place, Golden Buddha Beach. Yes. Uh, I, I just, I can see, well, I can't see, but through my mind's eye, I can see why you wanted to build there. Yeah. And stay there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so should we dig in on that yeah, a little bit? Yeah, let's. Is that all right? Yeah. Yeah. So you've been living there on and off as, and as much as possible before that fateful morning? Well, not quite, because the house was only really just finished being built. Had it been finished? Wasn't it was it still, kind of like still not there. really finished, yes. <laughs> but we were actually staying in it. Yeah. So, Good enough. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, it's the tropics, so you don't need walls um, or anything like that. You just need a mosquito net. Um, the... Um, it wasn't ever intended that it would be a place where you would live because it's a very um, difficult environment, particularly in the wet season. Like they pretty much have to shut the whole island down and go to the mainland because it gets, just gets ravished by the monsoons. So at best you would spend a few months there, a year or whatever. So it was more kind of like an escape or a, yeah, a little a retreat. Weekender. Yeah. Nice weekender. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And so that was the weekend. So I had gone down on the bus and I had written this story about a young man, a Vietnamese man, who was in jail for drug trafficking because the Australian Federal Police had a policy of working with the local police in Southeast Asia um, to prevent drug traffickers coming to Australia. But what they would do, and this was what got you know um the barley nine as well um is they would um do all the police work but then give all the information to the local police so that they would get arrested at departure rather than at arrival so the difference when you're getting arrested for you know a kilo of heroin in ho chi minh city versus landing in sydney with a kilo of heroin is the death penalty or not and so there was a whole bunch of Vietnamese Australian young men who had been um, recently given the death penalty in Vietnam. Did they make that mistake pre the barley nine as well? Yep. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. Is it incompetence or or are no, they doing it on purpose? Strategic. Yeah. So they like yeah fuck. They don't it want up. them. Don't don't bother us with your 
we don't have to do any court work. We don't have to prosecute mm. you. We don't have to put you in jail here. And did they? Is that the same thought that went into the Bali Nine? Do you think the Bali Nine was kind of a bit different because they were white? Well, they were Australian. Well, these guys were Australian too, but they were kidding? like dual Australians. Okay. They were like you know Vietnamese Australians. So they like might have come here as part of the you know wave of migration in the eighties from after the Vietnam War. Um, but yes, they still had ties or family, so they would go back. Often, what the story was. They'd often end up with some kind of gambling-related debt here in Australia that then they would be told they needed to do this job in order to pay it off. Yeah. So these, you know, 20-year-old men would get on a plane, go to Ho Chi Minh, hang around for a couple of days, get a package, go back to the airport, and lives be destroyed. So I had written a story about these because it was just not reported. No one really knew that it was even happening. And um, and so I wrote this beautiful story, <laughs> <laughs> and very pa- and, Best you know yet. I, I yep. met this young woman. Is, is you know she was advocating on behalf of her brother. She was very courageous talking to me because she was Vietnamese, Vietnamese, and so she didn't have an out. Um, and um, and she um, she told me everything, and you know to risked her own. Um, self to to give me the story and I wrote it with as much integrity as I could and wanted it to have a really big impact. So I had delayed publishing it before Christmas because I wanted it to have a big impact. And one of the sort of things in journalism is is that quiet news days are the days when you can like, if you've got a good story up your pocket, you hand it over to the editor on a quiet news day and they're so excited because they've got a big splash. So it solves their problem for the day. And you get, you know, to set the agenda for the week because everyone then runs around following it up. So that was my plan with this story. So I was very, very, I could have published it earlier, but I waited until Boxing Day. And I got up and polished it off, spoke to the news desk, and this is great. And it was like 1,500 words, and I had pictures, and I had stories, and I had example after example, and I had former ambassadors saying it was a travesty, and, and then sent it. And then thought, okay, I'll go to this meeting. So the the homeowners of Golden Budden Beach were leasees from this guy who was American who um, had a relationship with some local ties because of the property laws in Thailand. So it was all very kind of complex legally. It was all legal but complex. Um, and this guy was not very popular and there was a lot of unrest and there was a lot of discontentment. And so we were going to have a meeting to discuss what we were going to do about a coup or something. I don't know what we were thinking. (laughs) (laughs) Um, To to get this guy out. And that was pretty much why everyone was there. So we wandered down to have this meeting at 10 o'clock and that's when the wave hit us. So we'll come back to the wave because I'm sure you want to ask me about that. But what... Just because, in case I forget to come back to it, what ended up happening with this heartbreaking story about Vietnam was that the next day, of course, it got completely overwhelmed. Did by, it even get published? Well, that would have been a good outcome. If it had not been published, it would have been good because then I could have just waited Saved three it, weeks sat on it. and then yeah. resubmitted it. But no, the worst thing happened was that they did publish it at the back of the paper. So anyway, that was my other heartbreak of that day. So you were sitting there at this coup. Yeah. 
<laughs> Someone I think had called for a gender item. So that's as far as we'd got. Okay. Yeah. And you is the first thing that you hear a strange sound. Yeah. Uh, 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 and do you realise how strange that sound is in recollection now? Like, is it a guttural, like, you know, or you just sort of like, what the fuck is that? So this is, um, just to paint a little bit of the picture, this is an island that has no vehicles. You can only access it by boat. There's a grand total of like a thousand people living on it, but it's as big as, well, it's like 10 kilometres long and three kilometers wide so most of the people living on it are you know very scattered in little villages and so we were in the like right at this peak of this beach um with about a hundred people um and it was like peaceful it was there was just no it was paradise and so yes the noise that we heard was um Variously described by people as like a, a a bomb has been dropped in the ocean. My first thought was an aeroplane has fallen out of the sky <clears throat> or exploded in some way. It was a so massive, an explosion sound. Massive explosion. Yeah. It literally everybody just went and stood up and ran towards the noise. As you do, because you're kind of what the hell was that, right? Could you get a sense of the direction of such? Yeah, 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 it was the water. It was the water. It was the water, yeah. So we couldn't see the water from where we were because it was just a slight kind of little hill that we were down in the, in a kind of, um, just, yeah, down in a little dip of this hill. So we had to sort of run up, sort of up the back of the sand dunes, really, if you imagine it like that. Um, and then we got to the top and there was no plane, there was no bomb, but there was a guy out in the water who was kind of swimming back in and the water was sort of like a long way out and he kind of came out of the water kind of puffing and panting and someone said to him you just got caught up in a tsunami and then everyone laughed and what we know now or what I know now is that that was like the first wave my then partner JP was a big surfer and she used to say the first wave of a set is never the biggest. Well, they say in Hawaii you never go for the first wave yeah. in a set. Yeah. yeah. And so this was the first wave in the set, and it wasn't the biggest. But we didn't know that at the time. We didn't even realise it had been a wave. But by the sound of that description, it sounds far from the biggest. You know what I mean? It doesn't even yeah. sound like it was a tenth of the size of what oh, was Oh, yeah. 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 And yet... And this is something that's really interesting about memory, right? Because exactly your point it was maybe a tenth maybe even a twentieth of what was to come but the the noise was so loud we thought like this massive bomb had gone off i don't remember the sound of the actual tsunami wave i don't it must have been 20 times as loud as that but i don't remember that oh it's okay they're pretty directional so yeah um so while we were sort of standing there going ha 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 with this guy who survived the tsunami, I looked up and I saw on the horizon breaking water. And this was not a surf beach at all. Like this was a, you know, glass bowl kind of beach. Especially at this time of the year. In the monsoon it gets a bit of a break, but at this time of the year it was just flat. pancake flat. Yeah. <clears throat> and 
there was this wave breaking on the horizon. And I remember thinking, how, how can water be, how can it be, what? So as far, as far, we're on the horizon line, yep. you could see white water yep. left to right yep. the whole way. Yep. And if it's on the horizon, do you know how far the horizon is? Well, I think I actually... Did you quote it and put it in the book? <laughs> I don't recall what my research... It's 10 Ks or is it something yeah, it's like... something like 14 Ks? Something like that. It's not as far as you think, no. but it's still quite far. Correct. Especially yeah. when you think about it being water. Um, yeah, a long way away. So by that, yeah, okay, it's massive. Yeah. But did you have, could you fathom that? And I think the other thing too was the other kind of fact that I didn't know then, but earlier that morning, two separate people who were both scientists, because there was a big turtle research Mm -hmm. group at the beach, had heard another extraordinary noise earlier that morning that they'd both separately heard they were not together at the time and they'd both attributed to different things one attributed to dynamite fishing and another one attributed it to some construction work but in hindsight we actually retrospect we now actually think that what they heard was the tsunami hitting Arche. so it hit banda Arche, and then it took about another two hours to get to thailand could it not be the crack of the earth or the crack of the earth yeah Though That's a long way underwater. It was a long way underwater, yeah. It was more likely to have just been the wave smashing against the city. Yeah, okay. So So my point of all of that is, yes. as I say in the book, we were actually warned. Like there's all this talk about tsunami warning systems and da da da. Like we had all of the warning that we needed. Like if we had known what we were seeing You had all the warnings except the education. We didn't have the education, yeah. But even we, but even we had people who had the education because Lucy, who was one of part of our group, had spent some time in Japan, where they're very big on tsunami education, and she actually knew it was a tsunami, and she ran. I don't remember this. She didn't come near me, or if she did, I didn't hear her. She says she ran up and down the beach telling people a tsunami is coming, run for your life, and nobody paid any attention to her. Because the other thing that happened, happened, right? (laughs) Which is that you get transfixed. Your brain vacates. And this is shock. This is trauma, right? This is what happens in traumatic experiences. You do no longer process information the way you you and I are processing information right now. And you get this kind of complete and utter overwhelm of your senses and your brain just goes to sleep or something and so you are actually unable to um well i don't even really know what it is well but I, to, I just spoke to a friend of mine the other day she got hit by a car yeah right and pretty badly she was, was in, she a pedestrian or she was on a bike uh, crossing and uh, a car ran it and smacked into her and she turned and saw it and she said Everything slowed. Yeah. She goes, that's going to hit me. Oh, that's going to kill me. Damn it. This is how I die. Wow. And then she said she had a thought about being late to the class, and then she had an overwhelming more thought that this is fucked. I, I, this is a dumb way to die. Like, this is dumb. This is, I don't want to die like this. Shit. Yeah, coma, and was in hospital for over a year. Brain injury. Yeah, the whole thing. 
God. Anyway, but she said that the way that that moment of time broke down yep. and the thoughts that happened in a very yep. quick yep. is yep. unexplainable. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. It's something happens. Like the d- different chemicals are pouring through your brain, so it actually just processes information differently. And so, what I, how I kind of described it then, and lots of other people described it the same way too, was it's sort of like the rabbit in the headlight kind mm. of thing, where you couldn't. People even said that they knew they had to run, but just not yet. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's like I just want to keep watching it because it's just so amazing. It's like awestruck, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And what and why I think I survived was I broke that state and I turned around. And the reason I turned around, something caught my attention over the other side, which was a kind of little area that was like a bay because it was sort of on a little point. Um, So I sort of looked over to the right and I saw that this bay, which was quite a a decent sized bay, um, was empty. Like it was just empty of water. (laughs) And there were boats that had pulled up like not half an hour before to collect the next load of, you know, tourists going home um, that were lying on their side on the sand. And I remember thinking, why would the boat driver have put the boat on the sand? Why isn't there any water in that thing? But what that did was it broke me out of that transfixedness. And so I started to walk to, to go and investigate this empty bay. With white water on the horizon. Yeah, coming now closer and closer towards us, but then it's probably halfway. And then I thought, I'm really scared. I don't like this. But no one else is scared. And I feel a little bit silly, but everyone's going to laugh at me because I was such a scaredy cat, but I'm just going to go and climb that hill, climb that rock where there was a kind of the point. And so as I was doing that, kind of quite slowly, because I was a bit embarrassed and a bit sheepish about the fact that I was such a scaredy cat that I was, (laughs) (laughs) that I was doing this, um, a, couple, a family came up after me, a couple of young kids, and I remember thinking I didn't want to be responsible for them not making it up this hill because I was a bit unfit. <laughs> and it's like you have to climb. It was like a climbing scenario. Yeah, it wasn't a stroll. It, no. And, um, but there was a little path, but you kind of have to pull yourself up by trees and things, tree roots and things. And anyway, so I started putting a bit more effort into it because of these kids. And then I think that just then kicked the adrenaline in properly and then I just like flew up the hill and I was halfway up when the the water hit. Oh my god, yeah. it was that close. Oh, it was close, yeah. It was close. Another Were you still aware of the like John what's the word I'm looking for? Just the enormity of the situation? Um Yes. Hard to know. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Like, I remember just going, fuck, 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 fuck. <laughs> fuck, fuck. Like, I just don't even understand how you process such a... Yeah. A, like, it's just... Because the other thing is, is that it wasn't like there was one wave. It was like it just kept coming. It was like the water... Um, like the back of the wave. That was always thicker, right? So it's that, that whole moving in it's not just like this bit hitting it's yes. the whole ocean follows yes to level out yes yeah. and 
and that's what most even the you know you know that famous kind of um uh, Japanese etching of right. the, the tsunami, which is often the kind of iconic tsunami image that they use even on tsunami warning signs and stuff. That's a very beautifully shaped, you know, almost like a pipe. Mm. <laughs> nah. This is not something you'd surf. This is like a... Um, um, a re-leveling of sea level. Yeah. And it's, you know, coming up with half the bottom of the sea in it too. So it's brown and it's ugly and it's foaming and it's just smashes. And then it was like steps. You know, there was like you, your your description was exactly perfect. It was like a like this kind of train of water. But then behind that was another train slightly higher. And behind that was another train slightly higher. So it was like a bunch of steps. And then when it hit the in our case, the wall, which was the other cliff on the other side of the um, resort, then it came back, of course. But the other ones are still... refracted, yeah. Yeah, the other ones are still going over the top of it. So by that time, it's just this massive, you know, washing machine of, you know, turmoil. So, yeah, I think at that point you kind of know, oh, this is serious. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And when you see every building just like dissolve in front of you you realize there is no building left and this is as far as you can see Mm. yeah and the buildings at that you know it's an echo resort so there were a few wooden posts with some thatching you know bamboo thatching roofs kind of thing they weren't like you know solid concrete high rises or anything so you just see these kind of roofs sorry roofs just float away with or without people clinging to them. Yeah, I've just absolutely gobsmacked. Yeah. So it's just like the reality that we live in on a day-to-day, you know, I just it's hard to fathom that that, uh, that sort of thing is possible. Yeah. And I'm sure it would be, you know, before and after. Reality is so weird. Yeah, it is. Well, it's like your friend on the bicycle. You know, it's such a cliche, but it's like it's everything just changes in a in a moment, and it happens to people every single day. And you know, one of the things that that I sort of thought about because I thought about this, you know, obsessively for years afterwards. But we all have tsunamis. You know, like I got to have this big tsunami in my life that I can kind of say, oh, I was in the tsunami and everyone goes, you know, pretty much similar reaction to you. But I actually think we all have them, you know, but they might not be things that we, experiences that we share with other people. They might just be our own, you know, bicycle accident or, you know, relationship breakup or my dog died or, yeah, diabetes or what have you, you know. And these are just these, we go through exactly that same kind of process, the shock and the denial and the grief and the that sense of, like, being powerless in that situation. And, and we have to somehow kind of integrate it afterwards to change who we are. The part in the book that, um, you know, that, that I found that... It was really hard to, and I felt really felt for you was when you were out looking for the story in the mm. aftermath. Mm. And uh, the, I'm a very visual person, so yeah. I'm just I have, you know, I could yeah. see everything that you're writing, yeah. and also almost feel how distressing that must have been. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. 
I'm glad you came home. <laughs> it did change me, you know, and it, and I think that you need to work as a journalist. You need to have that sense that you have some kind of greater purpose in what you're doing. Like we were talking about before about, you know, going and finding the information that's going to hopefully change someone's life. But this was this wasn't going to change anything. Like no matter what I reported, no matter how many people I interviewed, no matter how many times I described this rot of the smelling corpses, you know, no one was going to end up with a better life as a result of anything I did. And that what that made it really hard. Whereas I think if you're in a war zone reporting on things that are just as dramatic, at least you think, well, maybe I'm going to be, you know, you're file educa- the story that's going to, like, change the course of the war. I mean, probably people aren't too, that too idealistic anymore anyway, but, you know, there is a possibility that will happen. Or I feel like if in a war scenario, at least you're getting the story out for the person that's been... Um, yeah. <coughs> what's the word? Brutalised. Yeah, that, that'll do. <laughs> <laughs> the oppressed or, or whoever. Um, and so you can... Uh, for me, I would be able to imagine I'm hanging my hat on that. Yeah, yeah. Whereas this just felt like... A sausage machine and you know some of the some of the conversations with the news desk were just unbelievably you know like if you saw it in a movie you would think it was ridiculous well when they had you looking for some story at the end that just seems so like, hotel oh my god <laughs> <I was> just... <laughs> why oh no we just got a good photo there we just got a good photo so we need you to write the story <laughs> you've got to be kidding me yeah it was hard and there was a, you know, because the other thing that happens when you're in trauma is that you actually lose a part of your brain that creates language. And I remember there was a moment where I I rang this friend of mine who was the Beijing correspondent. She was in Beijing. And I said, I can't, I just cannot write this. I cannot, I cannot say this again. I can't, like this, I can't do it. And she said, read me your notes. And I just read out, you know, slabs of my notes. And she was just typing. She said, it's all right. I've done it. I've sent it. She literally wrote my story for me by me just reading out her notes. And in any other circumstance, you would have been able to just bang that out because yeah. that's what you do, bang yeah. them out, bang them yeah. out. You couldn't yeah. do it. I just, like, I just, I didn't have any words left. I could not formulate a sentence to describe yet again this thing. Which, But in the end, the word saved me. Can I just say that too? Because I don't want to kind of, you know. In the end... Because I do have that storytelling um, skill, craft, I think journalism and writing is a craft, um, the fact that I, when I did sit down to write this book and even a few stories I wrote beforehand, it did help me to process it. People say, was well, it cathartic? I hate that word. It wasn't so much that it was cathartic. It was just that it gave me an outlet for my obsession because I became obsessed. I became obsessed with, you know, we were talking before about <laughs> attention to detail. You know, I I could tell you, I probably couldn't now because I've probably forgotten it, but in 2005 or six, I could tell you where every single person in that resort was in relation to every other. And then there were these like two or three in um, incompatible stories. Like people who said they saw someone standing here, but then that person said they were standing over there. And and it's just what happens in memory gets distorted, right? So even then I would be like attempting to nut it out, but 
but she said that you were standing here. But no, no, you were over here. And there was a few of us, like the few people who kind of survived this together. We would get together, you know, often once a year on the anniversary. And it was like this kind of like long lost friend because like, oh, finally someone who I, who's not going to have their eyes glaze over when I start talking about, oh, that's Pond's tree. I always thought it was that tree. (laughs) It was an obsession. I was obsessed. Do you think that journalists could make great detectives? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you've seen so many times where journalists have actually helped reopen cases through that kind of relentless, you know, uncovering of facts and that doesn't make sense and that contradicts mm. that and this is very similar yeah so so uh, it sort of helped me to be able to kind of finally put it to rest a little bit by just and on your own obviously time frame yeah because it wasn't for someone else it was yeah. for you yeah yeah so how long ago did you finish the book well, a long time ago now that I think about it, because it was like it happened in 2004 and it was published in 2006. Well, you still had a giddy, giddy up there. That's pretty quick still, I thought. Yeah. Two years. Yeah. People said to me at the time, how long did it take you to write it? And I said, well, I spent most of the time not writing it because I was, you know, it was right. sort of like a stop-start thing. Yeah, yeah. But I ended up going back there um, and I wrote it there. Oh, you did? I wrote most of it there. At the Golden... Yeah. Beach Resort. Yeah. And that was beautiful in a kind of really bizarre kind of way. And you're and in the place that yeah. was it still there? It was still standing. It was the one, one of the ones that was still standing, yes. right? Yes. There was about six or seven houses that survived and ours was one of them. So now you've had a lifestyle change. Yes. How much longer did you stick with the journalism for? Two years. After 2004? I ended up with very severe PTSD, like in unable to work, um, fetal position for months, incredibly distressed, incredibly um, incredibly broken, yeah. Um, and it didn't that, that just happen ha- straight that, away. Yeah. But that has to happen, don't you? Don't you? No, it doesn't. doesn't. Statistics will tell you that... Um, in order to be diagnosed with PTSD, you have to have a witness or experience a life-threatening situation. So lots and lots of people qualify for that. You know, like your friend on the bicycle, um, most people who go to war, most journalists. Um, but only about 5 to 10% of even people, um, war veterans, will develop PTSD. Mm. It's a very complicated thing. Most people are very resilient to trauma, actually. I feel like if I had have been through what you've been through, I would have had an emotional recoil similar. Yeah. Maybe not. I don't yeah. know. But I, I, yeah. Been put through something so. It's you can't really predict. You can. There are some predictive factors, and one of them is that thing I mentioned before about power. Like some people felt like they made decisions along the way that changed the course of what happened to them and some people felt like that they were just passive if you, even if you make a little decision like you turn right instead of left or whatever then it can it can improve your chances of not getting PTSD <clears throat> okay 
But yeah, right. I, so once again, it's the level of choice in the situation that they. Yeah. Yeah. It's the level of powerlessness. So. Have you have you seen, you know the Australian journalist Michael Weir, Michael no. Weir. Michael Weir, Michael Tell me Weir. more about him. He was the first person on the ground in Iraq before the Iraqi war broke, yeah. and he sort of befriended both sides of the... Yeah, right. Uh, I've got a docker on one of my hard drives I should give it to you. Yeah. It's a fascinating look. And he was captured by the um, by ISIS just before they were actually coined ISIS, and I think he was the first journalist to be put in front of that black flag and then let go. Oh, shit. And he stayed. Yeah. Um, and he's uh, he's got he's done this documentary anyway. Well, yeah, I was just thinking of all those people who have taken hostage. Yes, you have no choice. Yes, and therefore I would. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, well, just coming when you just start talking about choice, and I start going, where do you be stripped of? Yes, my head goes to being a hostage. Yes, no, but it's a but really good. It's, yeah. it's a really good point because the other story, which you know we can talk about or not, depending on what you want to do. But the other story that I mentioned in the book is when I was assaulted, and I had that experience of having that physical autonomy taken away from me. Like I was restrained. And I remember at the time thinking, and, and again, this is kind of, you know, what Western white privilege really, like how unusual that experience is. Like, you know, I can go through my life and I can just go where I want and be where I, you know, that's the, my privilege. Mm-hmm. But that moment, and, you know, it wasn't even like a a hostage situation, like 18 months or whatever. It was only a matter of, you know, an hour or something. But that moment of having that taken from me, I can remember it like it was yesterday. Like that feeling of like, I've lost my freedom. It was just, it was really intense. So, yes, I can only imagine what it would be feel like to have someone, you know, have you know all of well, that you were a hostage then yeah it's the same yeah i was in but obviously in a much you know mm. lesser time frame than someone who's held for 300 days or well i think nonetheless it doesn't even matter prisoners, you know like yeah. people carry on about prisoners being oh they've got all the luxuries they've got their you know university studies and their you know tv and things they haven't got freedom <laughs> you don't right. understand yeah, yeah, you yeah, take yeah. for granted this thing that we all have which you have no idea about just how extraordinary it is until it's removed. Yeah. And you do it in the, in, in not in the same vein, but when you're sick and you can't leave your bed yeah. and you just yeah. go, I just want to be well so I can walk to the shop yes. or uh, just yes. anything like that where you... Yeah. 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 So... Um, but that's true. Yeah, okay. Yeah, go on. So... um. Yeah, I just that all of those things like that's the that's the thing that I've learned more than anything is how do you create or recreate or enable someone to recreate a path of choice. So, yes, I think for me, the writing of the book, you know, I got to say that I wasn't on holidays, (laughs) Um, that I was working. I did file that story. It was an important story. Um, and by the way, he ended up not getting the death penalty. He got life imprisonment, but he did end up not getting the death penalty. So that was good. Um, but, um, yeah, like I was able to sort of chart my own path. But, yes, it was a long, a long period of recovery, long, long period. And I, in the end I decided that I couldn't go back to journalism again as a, as a profession and it wasn't so much because 
I couldn't do something like that again. Um, it was more that all of those things that you pointed to earlier in our conversation about the excitement and the you never know where you're going to end up and is great, but it also means that you live your life on adrenaline and you're just in this kind of such a high-stress, um, highly vigilant, you can't plan anything, you know, you your whole anything can just in, in a flash you're suddenly you know for three months you know in another country or whatever so yeah there's a lot of romanticism and excitement about that but it is also exhausting mm. and i think that um for me the getting ptsd and being so unwell and being so the cumulative consequences of you know yes it was the tsunami that was the, my trigger of the ptsd but it was also the sexual assault and it was also you know martin Bryan, and it was also my childhood and it was also all of those other things and i finally just got to a point where i just thought i just want a quiet life i just want peace and something i'd never really had ever some structure yeah just some gentleness mm-hmm. i don't want to be in this kind of state of hyper unpredictability and hypertension anymore and I do have privilege as a, you know, Western, you know, woman, the top 2% in terms of wealth and resources and what have you in the world. So I, I can actually have a nice life. Top two. Well, what do they say? I think we're all, most of us, even really? on average weekly earnings in Australia are like top two. Oh, my God. Yeah, something like that. If it's not two, it's three or four. I'm going to stop complaining about yeah. this and that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. So you're back at school. I'm back at school, yeah. Studying to be a psychologist. Psychologist? Yeah. Did you not know then? Um, I don't think... I knew it was in the realm, but I didn't know that it was actually psychology that you were yeah. studying. Yeah. That's another super interesting topic. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of always thought that'd be a cool <laughs> job too, you know. <laughs> I always thought being an actor and a, like a movie producer would be pretty cool. Uh, yeah. <laughs> We should, we should swap. But I always thought, you know, sit on the chair, have someone lie on a couch, you know. Yeah, I don't know that I'm going to be a couch kind yeah. of person. No, the, the 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 patients on the yeah, couch. Yeah, no. Yeah, no, I'm joking. <laughs> yeah, of course. Like, That's more psychoanalytic. Oh, is it? Psychoanalysis, the Freudian kind of thing. Oh. Yeah. It's a whole, like, different world. Psycho. A psychoanalyst rather than a psychologist. So a psychoanalyst, psychologist deals drugs? No, psychiatrist. Okay, there's the difference. I love the, I love the word deals. <laughs> <laughs> the drug dealer. You're going to be a drug well, dealer. No, one gives drugs, one doesn't. Yeah, no. Yeah. Psychiatrist. One gives advice and one gives drugs. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not into drugs. Yeah, no. No, not, not interested in them. Um, went through my whole recovery from mental illness without a single pharmaceutical. My story, I'm sticking to it. Yeah. Uh. And it was really important for me to do it that way because I had, as I mentioned earlier, my mum was in and out of psych hospitals and I've seen what psych drugs do to you. And I also have a really strong spiritual um, values system and I believe that there is a power greater than myself. And... Um, I had to decide that the power was actually going to be greater than my PTSD as well and that was going to actually help me through it. And so I did a lot of um, a lot of my journey, a lot of my healing journey was a spiritual 
healing as well as a emotional and physical healing and well, i'm better for it yeah i definitely think that anytime you can get through uh you know un- unassisted in that way if you can you yeah. can get to the other side and yeah. say if something wells up in you you go well i've gotten through this so yeah. i'll be fine with that yeah that's what it's given me like i don't really can't imagine a scenario in life now that i wouldn't know that i could get through it you know i was saying to my mum the other day that when i was 16 or 17 i had to see a, a therapist of some description yeah. because i was having a bit of a i was having anxiety yeah and i didn't know what it was from um, you know, I was smoking too much weed and all that sort of stuff at a young age. And um, I, they wanted to give me drugs yeah, yeah. to even it all out. Yeah. And my mum said, no, mm. no, he's going to work this out by himself. He's got himself into this mess. He'll get himself out of it, basically. <laughs> Just doing the tough love thing. <laughs> tough <Yeah>. love thing. <laughs> and it was two of the hardest months of my life, I remember. But I am so grateful now yeah. because any time that anxious feeling comes up inside me, I, I'm not worried because I go, oh, I've beaten this before. Yeah. I don't know if it comes up, so what? It'll go, it'll go away. Yeah. And, as opposed to looking for a drug. Yeah. Yeah, look, I wouldn't go as far as telling other people not to because I wouldn't want the responsibility. Um, but I definitely want to be an example of you can go through some pretty serious shit and come out the other side with a really a whole bunch of support network i had massive amount of support another thing from the privilege um you know i was able to see a psychologist i was a you know great friends network i you know i was all my years of you know other learnings that i brought to it so i certainly had the ability to get through it but yeah it was t- it was touch and go like it wasn't a it wasn't an easy journey it was no, really I'm really no hard doubt. yeah but i'm um, as like you like i just know now that you can pretty much throw anything at me and i'll i'll be all right yeah not that i want anything else thrown at me no totally <laughs> i don't want anything thrown at you either and and just to go back on the drug thing like if, obviously they work for some people you know yeah. and i don't want to say that they're right or wrong it's just that was my experience yeah. with it and yeah. i'm grateful that i don't have to but if it helps other people then that's good yeah yeah Karina, thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a joy. (laughs) (laughs) You're easy to talk to. Oh, well, I really appreciate you coming over and having a yarn. And so um, the book is called Out of the Blue, Facing the Tsunami by Kamina Lyle. Um, so where can we find that? And the movie's called Broken Ghost. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's awesome. Um, you can find it really in my cupboard. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> the odd library might have a tattered copy or an unopened copy, one of the two. Um, but, yeah, if anyone wants any, let wants to have know. a read, let John know, and um, I'm happy to chuck one in the post. Awesome read. Thanks again, Kamina. Thank you. Oh, yeah. Okay, there you have it. Uh, There was my chat with Kamina. Look, if you want the book, which I highly recommend as a read, uh, I read it recently and was just, uh, it was a page page turner, a page burner. I couldn't put it down. Um, 
So if you want that, just reach out to me, uh, I don't know, on Facebook or, you know, whatever, private message, blah, 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 blah. Um, and I will organize for that to be delivered to your door. So anyway, thank you so much for tuning in, wherever you are, whatever you're doing um, out there in this wide, expansive world we call Earth. Yeah. I hope you're having a good day. I hope you are having a good day. Um, take care and I'll see you. I won't see you. I don't know. I, I'll. It's so weird talking into a microphone in a room with no one around and not knowing who the fuck is out there even listening. So if you are, enjoy the day. <laughs> And uh, just look out the window at, at that expansive, well, for me right now, it's blue sky. And what the fuck is beyond it all? What is out there? I want answers. Yeah. All right. Take it easy. Take it easy.